All right, good morning. Well, welcome. This morning, as we're starting a new quarter for Sunday school, we'll be starting into a new book, and we'll be looking at uh, 1 Peter. And I've entitled this, Suffering, Trusting, and Doing What is Right. And we'll see today that that's the, that is the theme of this book. Um, so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that in your kindness to us, you have given us your word that we would know you, that we would know that we are known by you, and that um, the plans you have for us uh, are for your glory and for our blessing. And so we pray, Lord, that today we would uh, hear with open hearts the word that you have for us, that we would be transformed by it, and that we would uh, seek to walk after you in this upcoming week. We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, the book of First Peter. So I just got the devastating news that one of the women's Bible studies has been going through First Peter. So now uh, I have a front row that's ready to critique everything I say and uh, tell me where I got it wrong. So, uh, but I'm excited to go through this book. And, and uh, I picked this out for a number of reasons. But after the fact, I realized this is a, this is a great um, transition from what we just went through, right? Because what was the theme of our, our pre- previous uh, Sunday school? What did Stephen talk about? Acts 1 through 12. So who has the lead role in Acts 1 through 12 but the Apostle Peter, right? He's the one who uh, is the focus of that section. And so uh, you already know a little bit about this, and so you didn't know there was going to be a pop quiz. But it turns out that there is we're going to be looking at uh, the author of this book. So today we're just going to look at the first two verses uh, as the overview of this book so that we can today focus on um, uh, three main things. First of all, the author. Uh, If you're gonna understand a a letter, you need to know who the author is. Number two, you need to know who the recipients are, right? Who's the letter being written to? And then we're gonna look at the overall theme of the book so that we can then launch into understanding what he's writing. So today in 1 Peter, we'll just look at verses one and two. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So today we'll start again with the author. So this is where the pop quiz comes in. Tell me about the Apostle Peter. What do you know about him? Let's start with uh, everything prior to Acts, prior to the book of Acts. How did he first get to know Jesus? Yes, he was a fisherman, and uh, he was probably about 10 years younger than Jesus, somewhere around that age. Uh, and he was uh, introduced to him by his brother. Right? His brother Andrew said, hey, uh, I've heard this guy, come on over here and, and listen. And uh, evidently, as he followed him around during this period, um, he got to know Jesus, Jesus got to know him, and Jesus then called him to be one of the 12. And so Peter dropped his job, uh, and you know, it's, it's easy to just think, well, obviously, you know, Peter, he's the apostle, but think about what he did there. He was already married at this time, almost for sure, he was already married at this time, he had a full livelihood, he was working, and what he did was to go into itinerant ministry, right? So that's what all you wives want, right? You want somebody to come along and say, 
hey, husband, follow me. We're going to walk around for the next three uh, years and who knows where we're going to be. You know, that's, that's a great lifestyle. Uh, Peter is called and follows because he is faithful, right? Because Jesus he tells him, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And so Peter walks along and what kind of character does he show? What, what kind of insights do you get into the life of Peter as he is um, walking with Jesus for three years? Pretty reserved guy. Very, very human. Yes, very, very human. Lots of, <laughs> Lots of mistakes, right. Now why do we know that he made mistakes? Did he make a lot more mistakes than, than the other apostles? Probably not, but what was different about him? He was loud, yeah. He's the kind of guy who is going to make sure that everybody knows that you make a mistake, right? Um, as my grandfather taught me, better to keep your mouth shut and think that everyone and have everyone think you're an idiot than to open it and remove all doubt, right? Because that's what he's doing. By speaking out like that, he's constantly making these uh, crazy mistakes or just saying weird things, right? We we heard in a uh, sermon a couple of weeks ago. Uh, what, what is he, you know, well, what would you do if all of a sudden uh, you're at the transfiguration and Jesus is glowing and uh, here's Moses and here's Elijah? What would you say? Hey, let's, uh, let's pitch some tents. Uh, that sounds like a good idea. No, it's because he's the first one to speak. And the Lord, of course, um, blessed that. He, Peter's personality, everything about him, he was created by God, and so he used that. Some of the great things that he said, what were some of the great things that Jesus uh, blessed him for? He was the, one of the first, he was the first to say what? Yeah, you are the Christ. So he acknowledged Jesus as the Christ and, and uh, Jesus said, I'm gonna uh, give you a new name. Your new name in Aramaic is Cephas or in Greek is Peter. Um, both of those mean rock. And the rock of your faith, this faith, that rock is gonna be what I'm gonna build that church on. Uh, my church is gonna be uh, built on, on this rock. And then he also was the first one to jump out of the boat. I mean, sure, he sank in the water, but where were all the other disciples? They were still in the boat, right? He was the only one crazy enough to actually try to walk on the water. And he was also, I think he had the best of intentions, right? When Jesus said, hey, I'm going to be killed, what did Peter say? I'm going with you, right? I'm going with you. I'm going to be there, uh, you know, no matter what, whatever happens to you, it's going to happen to me too. And Peter had good intentions with that. Of course, what did Jesus uh, tell him, though? Uh, he, he told him, um, so when he had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Because he had already fallen away uh, from him. Jesus calls him back. Um, he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus restored him right? Jesus restored him, even after falling, even after uh, being the, the fastest to say, I'll follow you anywhere, and the fastest to deny him. Jesus restored him and called him uh, to a, a specific place, a place of, of an apostle. And more than that, he prayed for him. In, 
in uh, the, the um, uh, prayer at Gethsemane, he tells Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So he gave him a specific place, a specific ministry, and called him to that ministry. Now, in the book of Acts, we see that ministry played out because once the Holy Spirit is poured upon Peter, now he speaks and now tell me what you know from the book of Acts. Stephen is in the back, so you better get it right. What are the things, what's, what's the first thing that you see with Peter? All the way in Acts chapter one, he's the one who says, hey, we need to replace Judas. And then after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, how does he show his leadership? He preaches, right? He's the one who preaches on the day of Pentecost, right? He's, he's the author who uh, is, he, he's the uh, one who's going to proclaim uh, Christ and uh, many are called through that preaching to uh, salvation in Christ. Okay, so what else? What else do you see him doing? That's in the year about AD 30, right? 30, 33, somewhere in that range. He goes on to take leadership and what are some of the things he does? Yeah. He does uh, end up working with Gentiles. Now that's, that's moving uh, right toward the end of what you covered in Acts. And so by the year probably uh, 40, between like 44 to 49, 50 somewhere, 80 in that region, uh, he's uh, the first one who uh, opens up the gospel to the Gentiles because the Lord gives him a vision that he's also calling the Gentiles. Let no one call unclean what I have made clean. What else did he do? Yeah, that's right. So he takes a, a early leadership role. He's uh, within the first couple of years instrumental in uh, setting up uh, the deacons and establishing just the role of the church and how the officers would work within the church and the local church. He gets into some trouble, right? Because of what? Well, because he heals, right? He heals those uh, who are, he heals a, a man who's born lame, uh, that Sanhedrin, uh, uh, punishes him and John, so that's also fairly early within the first five years probably. But by the time of uh, later uh, leaders of, the, of that region, probably by 44 or somewhere around there, uh, he's uh, thrown in jail. And what happens to him in jail? Yes, an angel comes, smacks him, opens up the door, says get out, go. And he is, he's released. So that's about 15 years after the death of Christ. Um, during this time, so then uh, the, the last place uh, that we haven't quite gotten to yet in the book of Acts, uh, in Acts 1 through 12, we pretty much get almost everything of Peter and now it's gonna switch over to the apostle Paul. But there's one other major place where we see the apostle Peter taking uh, a role, uh, a major role, and that's at the um, Council of Jerusalem. And that's probably somewhere around 80, 50, somewhere in that region, 49, 50, uh, where he's going to be going, he's uh, um, going to stand with uh, Paul to say that we're not going to place these extra burdens on the Gentiles. Uh, Even though he uh, acknowledges that 
Paul is primarily going to be preaching to the Gentiles and he's primarily responsible for the Jews. Still, he, is, he works with Paul and, and knows the apostle Paul and they work uh, together, although side, side by side in different spheres. He's also proclaiming that, um, the, that God has made one family, uh, one family, both of the Jews and the Gentiles. And so his ministry is not exclusively to the Jews, although focused on the Jews. All right, and that takes us up through 50. Now, the problem that we get into with uh, the book of First Peter is that um, in the inspired history of the Bible, we kind of run out of what happened to the apostle Peter at this point. But between the years AD 50, and he was most likely martyred uh, late in uh, Nero's Re- uh, reign probably before the fall of Jerusalem. So somewhere 65 to 68 is probably where he was martyred. Um, but in this period between 50 and 65-ish, somewhere in, the, in that region, he clearly has a really uh, s- successful ministry. God is continuing to call him to continue to work and establish uh, among those who he is called to serve uh, the gospel and to set up churches and to continue his work as an apostle. And so we see this in the book of First Peter as toward the end, probably written maybe a couple of years before he was martyred, uh, in, as writing to those who he has ministry to. And his ministry is uh, to both Jews and Gentiles with, that are scattered across. So uh, let's take a look at the recipients then of the letter. So first of all, the original recipients, who did he write to? Well, he wrote to those who reside as aliens, scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So that region is found right in here. This is Asia Minor, okay? So that's modern day Turkey. So that's in between Jerusalem. So Jerusalem would be down here. uh, And his ministry had gone up into Antioch where he was at the church and also still not a, not a, not perfect by any means, right? Because the apostle Paul opposes him to his face because even at this point, he's still trying to figure out how he can please the Jews and maybe make them more like Gentiles, right? Or make the Gentiles more like Jews in order to, to, uh, avoid the potential conflicts. So Paul opposes him. Um, But from this point on, he's ministering. And and what we see is that he's ministering to those who are dispersed. They're scattered. They don't belong in this region, right? And they don't belong here for a couple of reasons. Uh, As we'll see later on, he's gonna refer to them as uh, aliens because they don't belong to this world. They belong to Christ's kingdom. But more than that, they are scattered. These are the scattered Jews. These are the Jews who had gone out um, probably after the the Babylonian exile and they had spread throughout the entire world. And so there was a a remnant of um, a witness of the synagogues throughout all the different regions in the Roman Empire. And so as the apostle to the Jews, he didn't stay in Jerusalem, but rather he was driven out of Jerusalem and was ministering uh, at this point to this particular group of churches. Um, We don't know exactly where the apostle Paul is at this point, uh, except he says that he is writing from Babylon. And there are a few different possibilities of what that means. It could be... um, 
literal, right? So he's literally writing from Babylon. That was kind of a small town by this point. And, um, but still one that had Jews in it, and so he could be ministering there. Uh, some people have thought of it more figuratively, uh, that uh, because in the book of Revelation, of course, Rome is um, supposed, is representative, uh, uh, Babylon is representative of Rome. But we don't, uh, so we don't know for sure there have been differences of, of opinion there. Um, but it could represent just that he's uh, also, uh, also in exile, right? To remind them that he is in exile as well. Any questions about that? The only other things that we know for sure at this point, based on what he said, is that he has uh, a man named Mark with him, who he calls his son in the faith. And what do you know about Mark? He did write a gospel. Now, that's a little strange, right? Because the, the word of God uh, was attested to by the church because it was written by the disciples. Now, Mark was not a disciple of Jesus. He didn't really hang around with Jesus. Uh, and so most likely this is the gospel of Mark is written by uh, Mark's knowledge of Peter, right? All these things that are found in Mark are very intimate eyewitness accounts. So this, in a sense, this gospel is coming from Peter because, the, uh, because Mark, who is writing it, is writing it from the perspective of Peter largely. We also know that Mark was, um, was unfaithful in his work with the apostle Paul, Right, and so Paul wasn't interested in taking Mark along, but uh, Mark did prove faithful in the end and, and uh, the apostle Peter uh, takes Mark along. We also know that there's a man named Silvanus. We're not sure that he shows up anywhere else necessarily in the New Testament, but he's also a fellow faithful worker according to Peter and he's the one who most likely actually did the physical writing of this letter and carried this letter. So the apostle Peter is writing this letter in the sense that he's speaking and Sylvanus is the one who's literally writing the letter and carrying it. Okay, so and he's carrying it to these people. So because he's carrying it to these people right here and that's who the recipients are, that's the end of First Peter, right? Are we all done? Because it was written to them, right? No, it's written to us as well. Because what do we know about these recipients? It's true that the first recipients, the original recipients are here, but what else do we know about these recipients of the letter? Well, we get a beautiful uh, description of who these recipients are that's one of the most concise descriptions of the work of the Trinity that's found in the New Testament. And these recipients are us, right? Everyone who is described according to this description, are the recipients of this letter because it's written to those who are aliens and dispersed. And we're also aliens in this world and dispersed throughout the world. And we also have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Chosen, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So what is this foreknowledge? You know, there, there are a couple of ways that we can use, uh, understand foreknowledge. One is simply um, that he knew ahead of time. So using an analogy, you would say something like uh, an astronomer, right? An astronomer foreknows an eclipse, right? He knows that it's going to happen ahead of time. 
uh, that's not really the kind of foreknowledge that we're talking about, right? Foreknowledge, uh, according to what Peter describes, is not simply uh, knowing something, knowing a fact, knowing about something that's going to happen in the future, like God is somehow just a really good fortune teller, right? That's not what this description is, right? That astronomer knows something, but he has no cause over that eclipse. Rather, the foreknowledge of God is a lot more like you would describe uh, an inventor or an artist, right? One who has, he has foreknowledge, he has he knows, he, he pictures, it hasn't happened yet, but he has the picture in his mind and it will come to pass. So in the same way, the vision of the artist comes to pass as it's drawn or the um, work of an, in, of an inventor uh, in his mind first and then uh, comes out. And that's, that's important because we are not chosen according to the foreknowledge as if God knew that we would be the kind of people that he should choose. Right? That's not what's happening here. We're not chosen because God looked ahead, saw that we were the ones, yeah, they look like the good ones, and so therefore I'm going to choose them. That's not what he's saying. But instead, this is a foreknowledge. This is according to his plan. And we, uh, we're pretty sure that, that this, this word is not used a lot, but it's used two other times by the apostle Peter that make this pretty clear. The first one is, in Acts 2, where he says and proclaims to them, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So how was Jesus delivered? He was delivered by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge, right? He, the delivery was by the foreknowledge, by God's, we would use a different, we might use the word ordained. God ordained that this would come to be. This was his declaration. The other place where the apostle Peter uses this is later on in the first chapter where he says that Jesus, for Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. Okay, so here's, here's the juxtaposition. He was foreknown in the past, but he has appeared now. So the difference is not that he was, that he was just, that God knew that Jesus was coming, Right, but rather that in the past, before he appeared, he was in the mind of God. Right? That this was God's plan, his purpose, and now for our sake he has appeared. That this has happened. He's manifested what was hidden. And so this is the foreknowledge that God's talking about here. So not only though are we foreknown by the Father, but now God works through means. The Father, by his foreknowledge, works through means for our salvation. And, this ha- and the, our salvation occurs by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Sanctification. Sanctification means the setting apart. Right? It's the, that God has called us out of the world and separated us. That's fundamentally what sanctification is. It's a setting apart for a purpose. And that is a work of the Holy Spirit. That's not our work, 
right? These, these are the individual works of the individual persons of the Trinity. Um, this is the work in which the Holy Spirit does where he applies redemption to me. He, reply, he, he applies redemption to us. Externally, outside of us, objectively, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, accomplishes redemption. But that redemption only matters as an objective fact. It only matters to me when the Holy Spirit applies that to me by setting me apart. You know, we don't claim that we contribute to the work of Christ, right? No Orthodox Christian is ever gonna say, well, Jesus's work, the work that he did was, is totally, he did all the work, I didn't do that, right? That, everyone agrees to that. But how many times do we take for ourselves the share in the work of the Father and the work of the Spirit, right? Jesus, well, he did all that work, but what I did, I foreknew myself, and I sanctified myself. I knew that that was the right thing to do, to follow Jesus, and I set myself apart to follow Jesus. But that's not what the recipients of this letter are, right? The recipients of this letter are those who have been set apart, not by themselves, but set apart by the Spirit. And what have they been set apart to? Well, and so another verse, just to show, this is the the testimony of the whole scripture of the whole New Testament. Uh, The apostle uh, Paul says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Right, God has chosen, but how does he accomplish his choosing? By the work of the Holy Spirit in, in sanctifying, setting us apart. Now, the last thing that the, the work of the Holy Spirit does, he, by the sanctification, he calls us to two things that are listed here, uh, to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. So the setting apart is accomplished by this sprinkling, and the sprinkling of the blood not only sets us apart, but cleanses us. So we have a great benefit in the work uh, that God did in the Old Testament in showing us so that we understand spiritual things that would not be easily understood otherwise. We see the sprinkling of the blood. We're not literally sprinkled with Jesus' blood in the sense that there's literal blood that we are sprinkled with, but we know what that means. We know what it means to be sprinkled by his blood because the Jews saw it over and over again, right? That's what the entire ceremonial law was based on was the blood. Tons of blood all the time. Every sacrifice had blood and, well, not every sacrifice, but lots of sacrifices had blood and that blood was applied. How was it applied? With a branch of hyssop that was dipped in the blood and sprinkled upon those who were therefore sanctified and cleansed. And because those things were cleansed, they could then enter into the presence of God. Hebrews is, of course, the the book that teaches this most clearly. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And the Holy Spirit has sanctified us through 
the application of the sprinkled blood of Christ. But that's not all of what sanctification is. Right? That's, that's important that you don't understand that that's what sanctification. God doesn't sanctify us. He doesn't simply cleanse us. But the sanctification is a cleansing that sets us apart unto himself. And what does that mean? Well, what that means is that we are in obedience to Jesus. That is sanctification. You cannot have a sanctification in which you are washed from your blood, uh, washed by the blood of Christ from your sin. You can't have that sanctification unless you also have the sanctification of being set apart with Jesus Christ as Lord, as the one that we obey, right? Because what is the mind in the mind of God in his foreknowledge, what did he do? He made us as his workmanship for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This is what we are sanctified to. We're sanctified to Christ for the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. And this this is the description of the recipients of this letter. So the question, of course, is this a description of you? Right? Is this letter written to you? Were you foreknown by God? Now, you're not going to be able to answer that question really easily. For those who have tender consciences, that's like, I don't know, was I foreknown by God? But that's not the point, right? The hidden things belong to God, but how do we know those of us who are foreknown of the Father, how do we know? Well, we see the work of the Spirit. We see the work of the Spirit because the work of the Spirit is conforming us to the ministry of Christ. Right? That we are constantly being set apart away from the world toward obedience in God. And that is uh, an assurance. The assurance arises from the work that we see Jesus Christ doing as we are being sanctified. So this book is all about the continuous reapplication and growth in our sanctification because the apostle Peter knows that this is not simple, right? Not simple at all. The obedience of Christ carries with it uh, many, many things, okay? Uh, and that's why we get to his themes. Um, the, the major themes of the book that we're going to look at. I always like to do these word clouds. Have you ever seen these word clouds? So what you do with a word cloud is you uh, cut and paste the entire book of First Peter and then you put it into this generator and what it does is it kind of counts up all the different words and based on how many times that word appears, it makes that word bigger. So then it pastes all of them into a fancy uh, shape. In this case, I just chose a circle, but by this, we get to see a little more clearly at least one aspect, one glimpse into what this book is about. And of course, like every book, what we see, it's about Jesus Christ, God, right? That's the center of, our, of, of what this book is about. But then you can see the themes, what he's talking about, and some of the things that show up as really important points are what is precious to God? What are the things that are precious to God anyway? What does God find valuable? They're not all the things that we find valuable, right? But there are many things that God finds valuable. 
And it turns out that in almost all cases, it's closely tied with the second theme, which is what is perishable and what is imperishable. There are two broad categories of things. Everything that we encounter in our life belongs to one thing or the other. Everything that we're going to encounter is either perishable or imperishable. And the things that are precious to God are the things that are imperishable. Those are the things that are precious to God. And he retains them and he holds them for, to himself forever. Which because God is imperishable, makes these things imperishable. Another theme that we'll see is the hope and the glory. Uh, there's a lot of talk of glory in this. It's a very glorious book. Um, but you might, get, uh, might not catch that if you're reading through the book because the glory is coming after. The hope and the glory are very closely related to suffering. So you'll see here uh, sufferings, one of the biggest word, and suffer. So if you combine those two together, that becomes the biggest word after Christ Jesus God. God, Christ Jesus, suffering. And so fundamentally, this book is about suffering. And so what I've done is to choose one theme verse, especially in a book like this. The book of 1 Peter is one of those epistles that has a very tight theme. And we're gonna see that the Apostle Peter is going to hammer on this over and over and over from one direction, from another direction, repeat it. And the place where it's best captured is in 1 Peter 4, 19, which is where I take the um, title of this uh, study from. Suffering, trusting, and doing what is right. There is a relationship between those three things. Suffering, trusting, and doing what is right. You can't have any one of those. You can't even have any two of those. All three of those have to go together for anyone who is going to be a recipient of this letter. And what he says here is, therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. This is, this is a command actually. So another way that you could translate this what would be let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So this book is about suffering. So does this book apply to everyone? Because do you know anyone who doesn't suffer? No, everyone suffers. Everyone suffers. And yet this book is not for everyone. It's only for those who suffer how? Yeah, who suffer by faith according to the will of God, right? Those who suffer, and then the very important qualifier of what that is, those who suffer according to the will of God. So again, there are two types of people. There are those who suffer according to the will of God, and there are those who suffer not according to the will of God. There's no, cat, there's no other category. There's no category of those who don't suffer, right? There are two categories, those who suffer according to the will of God and those who suffer not according to the will of God. Now, What's the difference? Well, Peter's, Peter's uh, bottom line of what it means to suffer according to the will of God, those who suffer according to the will of God are those who suffer in doing what is right. Those who suffer not according to the will of God are those who suffer for doing what is wrong. 
those are the two ways that you'll suffer. You'll either suffer for doing what is wrong or you will suffer for doing what is right. Because as I think it's quoted in 1 Peter, no good deed comes, goes unpunished. Now that might not be directly from 1 Peter, but that is really a theme of the book of 1 Peter. That there is an intimate connection between suffering according to the will of God and doing what is right. And in fact, those who do what is right will suffer. But that's not the end of the story, right? It's not just about suffering and doing right. It's also about what? Trusting. It's about entrusting, committing our souls to God. Because that is really where the rubber is going to hit the road here. This is what we have to get a hold of. Entrusting our souls to God. This has to become conscious in our minds as we suffer according to the will of God. Because that's going to be what is going to allow us to then do what is right. Because those, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls in doing what is right. That is also how we entrust our souls. The way that we entrust our souls isn't some abstract out there mysterious spiritual thing. The way that we entrust our souls to God is in doing what is right. The way that you walk day by day when you do what is right according to the will of God, what you're saying to God is, I'm committing my soul to you. Because if you're going to suffer, uh, you need to understand why he makes this a command. Why does he say, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to God? And it's because this is the thing we don't do, right? We try to avoid suffering. Isn't the natural thing to try to avoid suffering. And so we do this in a number of ways. Um, We don't want to suffer according to the will of God, first of all, by denying that it's God's will that we should suffer, right? Isn't that the message? Isn't that the message that you want to tell people? Well, no, it's not God's will that we we would suffer. That That would make God evil, right? No, that doesn't make God evil. God's will is that we would suffer. And we're gonna see in the book of 1 Peter why that's the case. It's actually for our blessing, it's for an inheritance, it's for many good things, but it is God's will that we suffer and that we suffer now, perhaps for a short time. But we're going to have to place our, hand, our, our souls, we're gonna commit our souls in that suffering. Instead, it's, it's very easy to um, not suffer according to the will of God, but rather to, uh, to, first of all, either deny that it is according to his will or to try to take it into our own hands because the opposite of suffering according to God by committing our souls to God is that we will hold on to our own souls. Right? We're gonna try to protect our own souls in order to avoid that suffering. And so all three of these things have to go together. Uh, I, as I was uh, talking right up here at the beginning, I think the single hardest thing for me, so I'm assuming it's hard for you too, in dealing with this book, it's really hard for me to teach this book because I look at myself and I say, I haven't suffered. Right? I just, I have not suffered. Um, and that's true, but I think that that's true for two reasons that we have to just, right off the bat, admit about ourselves. Number one, one reason I haven't suffered is because I haven't been willing to suffer according to the will of God. I've avoided it 
how many times, when, instead of doing what is right, I've held back on doing what is right. How many times could I have said something and I avoided saying it for what purpose? To avoid suffering. How many times could I have gone out of my way to help somebody and I didn't do it? Why? To avoid suffering. But God has made us, we are his workmanship for what? To do the good deeds that God has called us in advance for. He's called us so that we would do what is good in his sight for our own blessing, but also for our suffering right now. We have uh, the message then as we wrap up uh, this section that this is how the apostle Peter is able to say, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure, right? As you embrace the suffering that is according to the will of God, but also to realize, you know what? I'm not called to suffer in every way, right? God, this is God's suffering is according to the will of God. Each one of us has been called to suffer in certain ways, but God has given us great benefit. He's not called all of us to suffer in the same ways, but instead he's called each of us to suffer according to his will in particular ways and for each of us then to support each other and to comfort and help each other. It's a great blessing that he's given us in the church, but that means that we have to follow after Christ in his sufferings, okay? Any questions or comments about our intro to 1 Peter? All right, then, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you very much that in your uh, word to us, you have given us uh, great encouragement. We pray that this week, you would allow us to suffer according to your will um, in doing what is right. Help us to be able to see what is right and to do it. Um, And in that suffering, to entrust our souls to you, whether it's uh, simply through uh, doing the day-to-day tasks that you have called us to, whether it's in giving uh, a a witness uh, before those who are hostile to you, uh, in whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in your ways, to do what is right in your sight, and to entrust our souls to you. We pray in Christ's name, amen.